And if you would, please turn in your Bibles now to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 3 and verse 7. Now, while you're turning there, let me ask the children. Uh, children, can you name who, who you think the most famous of all the judges is? Someone want to try? Who's the most famous judge? Ehud. Interesting choice. <laughs> We're going to get to Ehud. Okay, that's a good choice. I, I think that's not, not the one most people would pick. Do you have a guess? Okay, God, God is the ultimate judge, but in the book, we're thinking of the human judges. I didn't think this was going to be a hard one. Yes? Go ahead. Yeah. Samson. Okay, I think probably Samson would be the most well-known of all the judges. And, you know, maybe there's a case to be made for Ehud. We'll have to see about that. But Samson is very well known, and, and actually there's a lot written in the book of Judges about Samson. I would guess that the, the judge that we're going to study today, a man named Othniel, is one of the least uh, known and popular judges. And that's sort of sad. I mean, I have to admit, I, I don't think I've ever met a kid named Othniel. And maybe there's one out there. Um, I don't know that there's lots of Samsons, but I think there's some. But uh, it's kind of sad because Othniel, as we're going to see, is way better as a judge than Samson. In fact, Othniel is presented to us as sort of a model judge. And so as we start looking at these different judges in particular, it's important to understand that we're getting here at the beginning sort of the, the prototype of how this is supposed to work. And sadly, it's not going to work this way uh, pretty much after this at all. So we want to appreciate what a good judge, what a judge should be like uh, before we get into all the other judges. So this is God's word. We're just going to read verses 7 to 11 from Judges chapter 3. Let's listen now. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their, their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so that the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And there ends the reading of this portion of God's word. May he bless it to us as we study it together this morning. Well, it's been a somewhat humorous if you followed the news the last week or so on uh, how the media is explaining to us that the mishandling of classified documents is, on the one hand, a constitutional crisis if it's done by a certain former president, and on the other hand, really no big deal if it's done by a certain current president. And so, of course, it, it reveals kind of an appalling double standard in our media. But more than that, it just reminds us of the fact 
that none of our human leaders is a person that's going to represent us as they should or perfectly. And so we recognize the weakness in our leaders. And sadly, um, the reason we often are so disappointed in our leaders is because we have a, a, a wrong view of what makes for a good leader. Sometimes we're picking people based on ideology alone or we're base, basing it on what we perceive the leader can do for us to make our lives better, easier, more comfortable in this world. And perhaps this is why we're often so disappointed in our leaders because we sometimes imbibe the world's view of what makes for a good leader and the world's view about that is broken, quite frankly. The Bible, on the other hand, has a very different standard of what makes for good leadership. And here in the story of Othniel, we see a paradigm of good, effective, godly leadership. And notice that this story is told with no elaboration. It's, it's just the details. There's no dialogue. There's no geography. Uh, there, there's no action hardly at all in terms of detail. There's just a few things that happen that are described. And the reason it's told like this, I think, is so that our focus will be on God. Because it is God who chooses, empowers, uses this particular leader to bless his people and to ultimately to give them rest. And so as we look at this uh, passage and we look at it in view of what we're prone to doing in our own lives, uh, we see here the main point of this passage, and I've given it to you in the outline, that pursuing comfort or rest, you could call it, in the world inevitably leads to some form of slavery. But God gives you deliverance and true rest through his appointed savior. And we'll see how that works out, Lord willing, in this text. And children, if you wanna draw a picture, you might draw a picture of this man, Othniel. You might even draw this strangely named enemy of Othniel and listen for what Othniel does for the people. Well, there is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The first thing I'd like us to notice is that seeking comfort in the world inevitably leads to some kind of slavery. We see this in verses seven and eight. And before we dive into that, let me just point you to sort of an overview of the whole book and where we are within the book. Uh, in, the out, in the bulletin there, I gave you kind of a very rough outline. And there we can see that the preface of the book, this kind of double introduction that we had, took us from verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 6 of chapter 3. And we said there was sort of one introduction that kind of explained what happened and the overview. And then we go back to the beginning uh, where Joshua was still alive. And then we have a second introduction. And that introduction is more of a theological introduction where we're being told what God is doing and, and why all of this stuff is happening. The fact that they're not able to defeat their enemies and they're uh, mixed in with all these people in the promised land. Then we get secondly to the main body of the book. And this goes from where we started right here, chapter 3, verse 7, all the way till chapter 16, verse 31, the end of chapter 16. And in that section, we're introduced to 12 different uh, judges, particular individuals raised up by God to help his people. 
And uh, we don't know for sure because it doesn't tell us, but it's, it's quite suggestive that there's a different judge from each of the 12 different tribes. Uh, we don't know because it doesn't tell us from where every judge comes, but everyone that's mentioned comes from a different tribe. And so it suggests that maybe we have representative judges from the whole nation. And then finally, there's an epilogue, and it's also a double uh, kind of a thing. It's a double conclusion where we have a story of idolatry and a mayhem, basically, that happens in the last uh, several chapters from the beginning of 17 to the end of 21. So we are in that middle part now, starting to look at these different judges. And so we start today with the first judge, Othniel. And, and now notice where the story begins. Um, my guess is if we were writing this story, we'd probably begin with the invasion of this uh, strange enemy, Kushan Rishathaim, uh, and whoever he was. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And so we talk about how he's come to the borders and he's overwhelmed and now he's in and now all this is happening. But that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible starts before that where the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. And that's actually where their problems began. Not with this foreign invader, but with their own decision to stop following God, to forget their Lord who had delivered them and who had blessed them. Uh, similarly then, in verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them, into the hand of this foreign king. Now, the language of those two verses is almost taken verbatim from earlier in chapter 2, where we, what this passage we studied last week, where we got this sort of very generalized cycle of the judges, right? The people forget God and they do evil and they serve Baal. And then God is angry and he sends a, 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 somebody to oppress them. And then they cry out to God. Then God sends a deliverer. The deliverer delivers them. And then they go right back into forgetting God again. And so what's happening is those, uh, that, that very paradigmatic uh, explanation or description from the introduction has now been imported into Othniel's. And Othniel's just being plugged in. And, and, and so this is happening exactly according to plan, the plan that was laid out uh, from, uh, from the, the introduction. And we see here that God is angry with his people for turning away from him. And so God, in a sense, sells them into slavery to this foreign king. He says, okay, you want to serve foreign gods? You can also serve foreign kings. Now, the question is why uh, is this happening? Why are they forgetting God? And I think what we talked about this earlier, you have to see this in light of them coming into a foreign land, being surrounded by the people who've been in that land for a long time, and these people saying, if you want comfort, if you want success, if you want acceptance, if you want ease, this is the way you do it. This is how we worship. This is how our culture works in this place. And for them, it appears it's easier for them if they just try to fit in with the people around them. And so they worship their horrible God, Baal. And God warns us very much about this kind of thing. I put in your outline 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. And there we're warned, do not love the world 
or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And here, uh, John is speaking of the fallen world, the world that uh, is not serving God. And it's always calling to us. It always wants us to seek approval from it. And this is the temptation. But if we try to make ourselves uh, popular in the world or comfortable in the world, we will necessarily have to compromise in some way because we will be seeking as the thing of most importance uh, popularity or our career or our family or acceptance or our health uh, or our fitness or whatever it is we think can give us comfort in this world. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they can never be the ultimate things where we are pursuing our state of ease. Uh, Paul says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of disobedience leading to righteousness? And in a sense, Paul's reminding us there, we have to serve something or someone. And if we will not serve God, we end up serving ourselves or some other idol and it leads us into a form of slavery. This is what the Bible calls it. I, I looked this up. The UN statistics are that something like, they estimate 50 million people in the world today are living in some form of slavery, where they've either been sold into a marriage or sold literally to in, in a work situation where the, 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 their labor is not their own, they belong to someone else, and they have no control over their life. And that sounds terrible. It is, in fact, terrible. And yet what the Bible says is that by nature, every person is trapped in some, a sort of spiritual slavery in which we want to serve ourselves instead of God or something else, and those kinds of idols that we build for ourselves never are able to do for us what we need. They can never give us true satisfaction, but they always take, always take, always take from us. And we always think, well, just a little bit more, and then I'll be happy, and it never works out that way. And God here is letting his people learn this painful lesson. You forget God, you turn from him, you seek comfort in the world, you will fall into some sort of slavery. And so God actually here is graciously showing them this terrible danger. But secondly, we see from the text that God is the only one who can deliver you from slavery. So verse 9 uh, tells us, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel. Now, I think we mentioned this last time. They, they call out to the Lord, and most of the commentators do not think that there's actual repentance going on here. I put one example in the, the outline. Ralph Davis says, when Yahweh raised up a savior for Israel, he was not reacting to any repentance on Israel's part. If anything, he was responding to their misery rather than to their sorrow, to the pain 
rather than to their penitence. So they're just in pain because for eight years they're serving this king who's come from far away to oppress them. That means they're having to work and then to give him uh, the fruit of their labor so that he doesn't kill them. And so uh, working in that kind of a condition where they're, they're, they're not them, uh, working for themselves but for this foreign king is, un, is causing great distress. And they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord responds in his grace to them as they cry out. Now, what you should notice here is that the, 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 the narrative is very uh, structured in this middle part. Did you, it was probably obvious. I had to read this awkward-sounding name four different times. Four different times, the author puts in the whole name, Cushum Rishathaim. Uh, king of Mesopotamia. And so he does it two times in verse 8, mentions the full name two times in verse 10 to sort of draw our attention here to what's in the middle of that, which is often the way it is in Hebrew writing. The emphasis is in the middle, which is in verse 9. And verse 9 tells us, again, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And what's interesting is as you read that, when it says, who delivered them, it's ambiguous. Actually, is it God who delivered them, or is it this man, Othniel, the the one that God raised up who delivered them? And I think it's ambiguous because the answer is yes. That's that's both of them. They're, They're working in tandem. One of the commentators says, Othniel works so in tandem with Yahweh that they merge together as one. And this is, in fact, the reason that these people have any hope at all, is because God is involved in rescuing them. One of the commentators actually argues that this this, uh, tyrant who's come from Mesopotamia is the worst of all the enemies they face in the whole book of judges. Now you wouldn't know that because there's so little said about him. But partly this is reflected in his name. So Kushan Rishathaim literally means Kushan the twice wicked or the double evil. He's a double shot of evil. And obviously, kids, his mom did not give him that name. That, that was not the name he, that was on his birth certificate. This is what his victims are calling him, right? He's Kushan, the double shot of evil, the double wicked. That's what they're calling him because that characterizes what kind of a tyrant he is. He's cruel, he's ruthless, he's powerful. And the other thing that we learn here is that he's coming from Mesopotamia, uh, the land between the rivers. He's double evil from double rivers. And there's probably something uh, going on there in the original language. But that's far away. All the rest of the enemies in this book are near at hand. This one has come from the north, uh, from where the Assyrians are going to come later, the Babylonians later. He's far away. And if he is so powerful that he can project his power all the way into southern uh, Israel, and he can do that for eight years, and these people are absolutely helpless, he is powerful. He's powerful and he's extremely committed to his domination. 
And in this way, we have a fascinating picture of our own lives apart from God's grace because by nature, we forget God and are drawn into some kind of slavery where we're serving whatever it is, our job, our career, whatever it is, and we fall under the power of an evil tyrant who we are unable, we are powerless to defeat. Now, the Bible calls the devil the ruler of this world, this present world. And, and his power is far greater than any power that you or I have. He's far more cruel and resourceful and committed to your destruction than this king was uh, in, in, in the book of Judges. And so if anything is going to happen to free you from bondage, God is going to have to do it. God is going to have to intervene on your behalf to rescue you. And this text is emphasizing, again, by giving us so little details. On, on nobody, There's no dialogue in this. There's so little detail. So the emphasis is on God. God is the one who has to save us from slavery. Thirdly, God saves, we see here, by the power of his spirit. So this man, Othniel, We'd actually been introduced to him before. Uh, the text here tells us that he is uh, the nephew of Caleb. And I'm sure you children remember who Caleb was. Caleb was one of the good spies who went into the land and, uh, along with Joshua. And Caleb was Joshua's right-hand man uh, when, uh, when they went through the conquest of the land. So Caleb himself was a, was a wonderful uh, and mighty man. And so this is his nephew. And he, we, we can read about him both in Joshua and in Judges. I put in your outline where he was introduced to us in Judges chapter 1. And here's what it told us. Then Caleb said, whoever tax Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. So we don't know, don't know a lot about Othniel, but we know he's brave, uh, he's bold, he's a great warrior, and he's a smart man. Uh, he marries, remember, this is a time now when a lot of these guys are marrying with, intermarrying with the pagans around them. He marries an Israelite woman who is the daughter of Caleb. And uh, we know, there's a little bit about her, that she is a strong and, and, and wise woman herself. So th there's a lot to commend Othniel to us. And we might be tempted to think that the reason this whole scheme uh, works and that Rushan Taim is defeated is because of Othniel's bravery, skill, might, wisdom, boldness, resourcefulness, and all the rest. But the text helps us know that that's not, in fact, why Othniel is successful. Rather, it says in verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And that is the sole reason that he's successful in doing what he does. Because God's spirit comes upon him and equips him and enables him to do what he has to do. And notice how the spirit directs him. It says, first, he judged Israel. So I think this implies that he came and he confronted Israel in Israel's sin, and he called them to turn back from serving Baal 
and to serve their God. That was the first thing he did. And the second thing he did as a function of his being a judge was, it says, he went out to war. He confronted them in their sin. Then he led them to war against this foreign king. All of his abilities to do this came from God. That's what makes him an ideal judge. He obeyed God and he served God. Last week, World Magazine had an opinion piece on a congressman from Texas named Chip Roy. Now, in the opinion piece, Chip Roy was described as a sincere Christian man who is determined to stand up for truth and his principles. And I don't know Chip Roy, so I don't know how accurate this opinion is. But the opinion was that what made this congressman a good congressman was first and foremost his love for God and that everything he was doing flowed out of that. And that is, in fact, what this text is also reminding you, that the number one criteria for a good leader is to be filled with, empowered by, guided by, and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And you can only imagine how things would be different in our nation if we were led exclusively by people who were under the influence of the Holy Spirit, genuinely converted people seeking the honor of God and acting according to his word. And this is the most important criteria, and this is what Othniel had. This is why we call him a model judge. And as we move away from him in subsequent weeks, we are going to see that in all kinds of different ways, this is a problem for the other judges. And it gets worse and worse as we go through the book. But it's not just important to recognize that this is a key trait of good leaders. This is important to recognize about ourselves, that the only way you and I are going to accomplish what God wants us to do is if we also are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by him for our work. It is the Spirit who has to change your heart and enable you to come to faith in Christ. It is the Spirit that has to be at work in you to help you grow in your faith and your ability to obey God, your desire to obey God. It is the Spirit that has to lead you throughout your life to a maturing faith and service to the Lord. We are completely dependent on the Spirit's work. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking while I say this, what is he talking about? I don't know anything about this Holy Spirit. Please come and talk to me. Come and talk to me. Because you will accomplish nothing of what God is calling you to do unless God's Spirit is what drives you and empowers you. So God saves by the power of his spirit. We see fourthly that God completely overpowers your enslaver. So while Othniel does judge Israel, his ultimate role, right, is to save Israel. In fact, 
in this, in this uh, section we've read, when it says God raised up a deliverer, uh, you, you could also translate that word a savior. And, and that is his primary role, is to save these people. Uh, commentator Barry Webb, judgeship is not essentially about administration, right? He's, there is some of that, but he's not there to organize the people. It's not about retribution, right? It's not about punishing evildoers, although it involves both, but about salvation. The book of Judges is a book of saviors. So what does it tell us in, that happens in verse 10? He went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so that the land had rest for 40 years. And literally, that word, over, that word prevailed could be translated overpowered. So Othniel goes out to battle, and he completely overpowers this powerful king who's come from so far away. And again, if, if, if we were writing this story, we would like a whole lot more detail. I am absolutely sure that the movie version of Othniel is going to, like half the screen time at least will be on the battle because that would be really interesting, right? How they got their forces together and how they, ta- but that's just not given to us. The point is, it's, it's such an overwhelming victory that, uh, that, the, that the forces of this enemy have no chance. Uh, I, I put a quotation from Lawson Younger in your outline. For Othniel, there's no need for deceptive stratagems, outside help, special vows, and so on. It is a simple, straightforward victory through the spirit of Yahweh's empowerment. And obviously saying that, because we're gonna, we're gonna see all kinds of this stuff coming up later in the book. But here, none of that's necessary. This is just overwhelming force. Amy and I were were teaching at a boarding school in the early 90s, and we had a lot of students from Saudi Arabia there. And uh, there was quite a bit, they had their families were, these were Americans whose families were working for oil companies or with the military. And so there was a tremendous concern when the Iraqis invaded Yemen and then actually went into part of Saudi Arabia. And all of these uh, kids were terrified about what it all might mean. And uh, you might remember there was kind of a slow buildup of uh, troops getting ready. But when the American-led forces went to war in early 91, in what was called the first Gulf War, it was all over in six weeks. And Iraq at that time had an army of 900,000 soldiers, a standing army. It was the fourth largest army in the world at that time. 900,000 soldiers. And in six weeks, that force had been reduced by half because of the absolutely overpowering technology, weaponry, uh, of, of the Americans and their allies. It wasn't even uh, a fair fight at all. And this is what's being described here, overwhelming power against an enemy who appears from our standpoint to be uh, invincible. And yet God's power is so much greater that the, the victory is won without, in a sense, hardly breaking a sweat. 
and, and recognize this is how the battle against the great enemy of your soul also works. It's the overwhelming power of God to deliver us. I put on your outline 1 John 3 verse 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And if you read the account in the book of Revelation of this final conflict when Jesus comes again. It describes all these forces gathering together to fight against God and his people. And then the whole thing is just over in one verse. And God wins the victory. And it's not a question, it's not a nail biter, we're not worried, how's it going to come out? God's power is overwhelming. And this text is reminding you that is your hope is that God in his overwhelming power will take out the enemy of your soul and whatever it is that might be a danger to you to keep you from him. God completely overpowers your enslaver. And so finally, fifthly, enjoy the true rest God gives you only through his chosen savior. This is the great accomplishment of Othniel. Verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years. Understand what war does to a community or to a country. Um, The Ukrainian president uh, came to visit and claimed that 50% of the nation's infrastructure is destroyed in a little under a year. That means half of all the roads, half of all the bridges, half of all the power plants. It's half of all the homes, too. The hospitals, everything is destroyed. The crops and the agriculture has been deeply damaged. Entire life is upended by this. And this is the situation the people of Israel were in under this king from Mesopotamia. But God's chosen savior comes and defeats the evil one and brings to the people rest. This, it says the land had rest. It's a comprehensive rest. It's, it's a, a form of peace and quiet and normalcy. And no, it doesn't mean that they're all now, everything's great with their pagan neighbors. That's not what it means at all. But it means God has given them freedom from this terrible oppression that they had been experiencing. And this is a very generous rest. It lasts 40 years. They were enslaved for eight years. But the rest lasts 40 years. That's an entire generation's worth. It's a remarkable gift from God. And it only comes because God's chosen Savior was working in the power of God's Spirit. But then look at the last thing we're reminded of there at the end of verse 11. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Othniel is presented here as a perfect judge, except for one thing. He couldn't live forever. And this rest was not a permanent rest. What God offers you and me 
is a permanent spiritual rest. I put in your outline Hebrews 4, verses 9 to 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. You see what he's saying? Come to the Lord and there is a rest available for you. And just like God uh, created the world in the first six days described there in Genesis and then rested on the seventh day, he holds out this seventh day of rest as an eternal day of rest for God's people, one that won't end. And just as an aside from that verse in Hebrews, it, it reminds us that when we come and worship him on the Lord's day and when we take our rest on the Lord's day, we have a foretaste of this eternal rest that's promised to God's people. Now, now recognize, if we wanted to talk about what makes for great leaders, what the, what the American president should be, we could go to uh, Article 2 of the Constitution and we could read what it says there about the president, or we could talk about the life of George Washington. And we could say, here's a man who sacrificed tremendously to lead the nation, to throw off an oppressor who was one of the greatest military powers in the world. And then when he's asked to serve, sort of begrudgingly does it for eight years and they want him to stay longer. He says, no, we, we don't have a king here. I'm going back to private life. Leadership isn't about enriching myself. It's about service. And, and we would see George Washington as a sort of paradigm as what a president should be like. And this is what Othniel is for us here. He's a paradigm of what leadership should be like. But more than that, he points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Othniel is the only judge from Judah in the book. And he is the one who comes reminding us that we need an eternal savior. Because his only limitation, he was perfect. His only limitation is that he couldn't live forever to lead the people forever. But God sent a savior from the tribe of Judah who won the victory, who was empowered by his spirit, who delivered his people, who did it by dying himself on the cross and rising to glory again. And he overpowers the enslaver of his people and he brings his people out of captivity and he gives us rest in him. This is what Jesus Christ does. And this is why Jesus says to you and to me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. If you try to pursue rest by seeking things in this world, you will only get some form of slavery. But God has sent his chosen savior to come and defeat your enemy for you and to give you rest that is spiritual now, but will be all comprehensive in eternity when Jesus comes again. 
So come to the Lord Jesus in faith and keep coming to him in faith as you fight the temptations of loving this world more than God and know that he is the perfect savior who delivers you from slavery and brings you into his eternal rest. Let's pray and give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of Othniel, a judge that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention. We pray that you would help us to see in his story the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came not to seek his own glory, but to glorify his Father, uh, the one who acted in the power of the Spirit to overwhelm and overthrow the great enslaver of his people. We thank you that Jesus did that on the cross, that he absorbed our punishment for us, that he rose victorious from the grave, and that he lives forever to give us peace and rest that is not available in the world, but only through our Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to know this rest and that you would help us to trust our Lord and Savior. And if there are any among us who are not sure about where they stand with Jesus, that you would be at work to help us to see Jesus as the one who came for us. He came to deliver us. And we pray, Lord, that we would reach out to him in faith. Bless us even this week as we face temptations of various kinds. Help us to find peace in the victory of our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. And let's sing our praise then back to the Lord from Psalm 72, Selection E. Speaks very much about what we were just studying. He will save the needy when they call. Save the poor and those who have no help. He has pity on the poor and weak, and he saves the lives of those in need. From oppression and from every violence, he redeems their life and buys them back. And that is the story of what our Lord Jesus Christ does for us. And we sing here of Jesus' saving work on our behalf. Let's stand and sing our praise to him.